Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Charlotte. How are we doing? Welcome back to all of you who have been on the welcome course for four weeks. Give me a shout if you've been on the welcome course. Okay, not, not, as, big, not as big a crowd back. I'll <laughs> we'll have to pick that up tomorrow. They've done the welcome course and they haven't come the following Sunday. What could we deduce from that? It's great to have you back. So today we're going to look at the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Another way that you could legitimately translate this phrase is, happy are those who are sad. Jesus is intentionally using very provocative, unusual language. Um, Pete explained the word makarios that gets translated as blessed last week, but I found out an interesting tidbit this week, but the ancient Greeks used to refer to Cyprus with the same word because it was so wonderful and beautiful. That's the kind of, it's like this idyllic state to exist in, makarios. And the word for mourn is the strongest such word in Greek. It's passionate lament. So Jesus is intentionally putting these two words as far apart as possible. And of course, much of what Jesus says is provocative. And all of the Beatitudes, to some extent, are provocative, but perhaps it's never sharper than it is in this short phrase, blessed are those who mourn. And this whole question about why is Jesus using this kind of language is a good jumping off point, I think, since we're still near the beginning of this series to explore a little bit more about what the Beatitudes actually are and what Jesus is using them to do before we reflect on the second Beatitude together. Along with Psalm 23, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer perhaps, the Beatitudes are right up there with the most well-known parts of Scripture. But I would argue out of that little group, they're by far the hardest to actually understand and work out what we're supposed to do with them. So let me um, show you something that might help us get into, into this. So there's a German artist, street artist called Edgar Mueller. If you're listening to this in the podcast, I can only apologize. This section is not going to work particularly well. But if you Google Edgar Mueller, if you're listening to this, you'll see what I'm talking about. So if you look at this first picture, fairly nondescript piece of concrete, I think you'll agree. 
not very interesting to look at. On the second picture, you'll see some white lines, vertical lines that the artist Edgar Mueller has started laying out. And then we're going to skip a whole bunch of intermediate steps. If you're interested in this, do go and Google it. It's amazing. He's done loads and loads of pieces. And I'm going to show you the finished piece. Yes, that was the audible gasp I was hoping for. <laughs> amazing. So as you can see, Edgar Mueller uses his artwork to create this amazing three-dimensional effect. Now here's the catch. If you're standing anywhere except this particular point, the effect is ruined. It doesn't make sense if you were standing at the side of it or even just off to the corner or even if you were standing on the other side of it. It would just look like a strange bunch of blue paint on the concrete. You would not understand what the picture is about. You have to be standing in the right spot. And I think the Beatitudes are a bit like this. It's vital that we look at them from the correct spot. Otherwise, we'll be confused. We won't see what the picture really is. And we might even... Um, perceive it to not be very beautiful. And so my hope is that this series, and particularly this next little sort of 10 minutes that we're going to go through, will help us to know how to stand in the right spot when we approach the Beatitudes in this series and for the rest of our lives. Um, as Adam alluded to, I've really wrestled with how to approach the Beatitudes. Where is the right spot to stand in order to see them correctly? It pains me to tell you that my, one of my great heroes, Dallas Willard, he's got this amazing sort of uh, theory on how you should approach the Beatitudes. And I've actually just come to the point where I just, I think you didn't get it quite right. And it's, it's I cannot tell you how painful it was. I'm quite loyal to the, those that I admire. And so to, to think that Dallas Willard was not correct about something has been very difficult. Um, I, I do love him, but I would still recommend you read The Divine Conspiracy. There's still a lot of gold in it. But how he treats the Beatitudes, um, I've, I've had to go, oof, I'm not sure. And speaking to a few people this week, my hunch is that, like me, you maybe have never really got the right spot to stand in. We don't really know what to make of them. They're really beautiful, they're lovely, they're nice, they sound good, they trip off the tongue easily, but we don't really know how to embody them and how to um, sort of bring them into our lives in any meaningful way. And I want to propose the most common mistake I think that gets made with the Beatitudes is that they are read from what we're going to call an idealist perspective, which means we bring questions like the ones that are going to come up on the screen. Things like, um, are the Beatitudes high ideals that Jesus is urging us to live up to? Are they entry requirements for the kingdom of God? Perhaps they're just a checklist for what it means to be a good Christian. And on some level, even if it's subconscious, I think many of us probably bring this kind of thinking into the Beatitudes. And the danger here is that we can take the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus' manifesto for the kingdom of God, and we can just turn it into a new form of legalism. If only we can modify our behavior by following some rules, we could become someone that embodies all of these things that we read as virtues, and then through that we'll be saved, we'll experience the fullness of life that God desires of us to have. Now, I know you may not explicitly think that, but I, the more I've thought about this, I think there is just a bit of that thinking that has just crept in, and people kind of don't really know what to do with the Beatitudes. The danger, of course, of this is that if we fall short of them, which undoubtedly we all will, we'll just feel guilt and inadequacy. And if we somehow did get close to embodying all of these things, we might become proud and self-righteous. And as I said, enough people, I think, have conceived of the Beatitudes in this kind of manner, 
that we just kind of read them, we think they're beautiful, but then we don't really know what to do with them, and we, to some extent, just ignore them. Maybe we move on to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, because it's a little bit more sort of practical um, in terms of what Jesus is, is advising us about. So let me suggest to you a helpful distinction that I've started to use when I think about the Beatitudes. We've just finished a series uh, looking at the wisdom literature, which I know everybody really enjoyed. And the thing about wisdom literature, it's amazing, um, but it, it's trying to give you chokmah, right? Practical uh, advice, wisdom for how to make good decisions so that you will live a good life. So the onus is on who in wisdom literature? It's on us, okay? Make good decisions, okay? Here's the wisdom of God that we read about in scripture. Now go and make good decisions because the, the, the onus is on us, this is good, this is important, and I am no way saying disregard the wisdom series. But if we approach the Beatitudes with that kind of mindset, we can get into trouble. If we think of them as practical advice on how to live better, we might get stuck. So I'm going to suggest instead of a wisdom teaching, the Beatitudes should be viewed more as a prophetic teaching. The crucial difference being that where wisdom literature, wisdom teaching places the emphasis on our action, prophetic teaching places the emphasis on God's action. Now, why do I suggest this distinction? Hold in your mind for a moment the types of people that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, the poor, the persecuted, the mourning, and so on. So hold those kind of images in your mind. Now, let me read to you just the first few verses of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Isn't that striking? Did you spot how many <laughs> types of people mentioned the Beatitudes also come up? In Isaiah 61, mourning will turn to joy, despair will turn to praise. Now, I'm only doing the first three verses just because of time, but if you go home and you read Isaiah 61 the whole way through, you will spot more, and they will be mentioned multiple times. And interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, before we get to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as they appear in Luke, we also get the story just before that of Jesus standing up in the synagogue in his hometown and reading Isaiah 61. It's where he stands up, they hand him the scroll and he reads that passage. So I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say that Isaiah 61 is one of the key texts through which Jesus actually understood his mission. And so therefore, I think we have a major clue as to how we are supposed to approach the Beatitudes set against this backdrop and Jesus's proclamation, both in Luke and Matthew, that the kingdom is near. I think the Beatitudes become less about high ideals for us to live up to, and they become about God's gracious deliverance and our joyous participation in his work. 
as, as Carl came up and said to Adam today, the Lord is present and let's, let's, let's embrace his goodness and his faithfulness. The Lord is already at work. The Beatitudes are about us part, just participating in it. It's on him and it's for us to just join in with. That, that's, that's kind of what I think Jesus is doing with the Beatitudes. So how might this work if we then examine one of them? So if we zoom into blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Let's just take a little working example. Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who mourn because mourning somehow makes them virtuous and they will get the reward that virtuous people therefore deserve. That would be the idealist approach. I think Jesus is saying something more like this. Blessed are those who mourn because God is gracious and he is acting to deliver us from our sorrows. This is the prophetic approach to reading the Beatitudes. We are blessed not because we are doing something right, but because we are experiencing God's reign in our midst right now, and we'll experience it fully in his future reign. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So we could say that the Beatitudes are really more like a prophetic declaration than a moral checklist. It's not primarily about us. It's primarily about God. And once we see this larger story and we hold this before us, then we can begin to ask the secondary questions of how the Beatitudes might instruct us and the kind of virtues that we could embody. But it's so important that this is held secondary to that larger narrative of God's prophetic action in the world. That's an incredible number of hours of reading and thinking that have... uh, being distilled into a few minutes, but I hope you find that approach helpful. And that's really hand on heart. That's what I really think the Beatitudes are about primarily. So let's spend some time looking at the second Beatitude today. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There are three obvious ways I think that this phrase could be interpreted and has been interpreted through the years. And the first one is probably the one that springs to your mind um, the most, uh, most immediately. And it's to do with bereavement. The word mourning in our culture and in our language, primarily we would use in the context of someone being bereaved, right? And I could unpack that. That could be a whole sermon. And of course, we know from everything else that we know about Jesus that he is close to those who have gone through the worst kind of sorrow imaginable. But if that's one way to take that phrase, there are a couple of others. And I actually think that first one more neatly fits into these slightly more meta ones. The second way you could read it is feeling sorrow over the sin of the world. You mourn, you you experience grief over what you see going on around you. And then the third one you might have got ahead of me is feeling sorrow over your own sin. And that, I really think, is is the primary context of this beatitude. Now, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's essentially about recognizing your own brokenness before God. You're destitute in spirit. You have fallen on your knees. You're at the end of your rope, and you've said, God, I am a sinner. That's blessed are the poor in spirit. That's what that's getting at. So if the first beatitude is about confession, the second beatitude actually flows from that place to more of a contrition, 
And so if you've recognized that you're a sinner, then blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who recognize and who mourn over their own sin. With me? Okay. And sin is, of course, the root cause of all kinds of pain and suffering and death. We are all victims of it, and we are also all perpetrators of it. To be a human is to both experience pain and to cause it as well. Those who mourn, therefore, are those who actually acknowledge and then learn how to appropriately grieve over that kind of sin. It makes me think of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I think those who mourn are those who are, have the ability to hold their sin before them, who know that they are broken. One of the remarkable things about the, the discourse that we see in so much of our public life is that people are, I know you've probably spotted this, very good at spotting the sin of the other group or the political opponent across the aisle from them and not very good at spotting where they might be blind to some of their own short-sightedness, short some of their own mistakes. This is what Jesus, of course, unpacks later in the sermon. First, take the plank out of your own eye so that you will be able to see better to remove the speck from your brothers. And a little side note there, but the whole Sermon on the Mount, you know, when you read the Beatitudes, you have to continue and read the whole thing because actually so much of it is Jesus unpacking some of the stuff that he starts alluding to in the Beatitudes. There is a humility that comes with realizing, mourning, and repenting over your own sinfulness, bearing in mind when it comes to engaging with others that you don't have all of the answers and you don't always make perfect decisions. There's something about this kind of humility, this kind of posture that Jesus values. So again, we see the Beatitudes. It's not, it's not just some sort of slot machine where you put something in, you get something out. It, get something out. It's about a, a posture that you begin to develop, that you hold in all of your relationships and all of your engagements with people. And this heart posture enables you to receive the grace and the forgiveness of God to be comforted. I'm listening to a, a book at the minute called Becoming Dallas Willard. I'm going to just temporarily just remind you that I love him and it's, it's okay. But he, he has so many brilliant little insights. And, and someone asked him once in a seminar, um, how do you find God? And he said, well, that's easy. God's address is www.attheendofyourrope.com. I googled that just to make sure it's not a real website. So. so if we were to try and pull some kind of learning, some kind of principle out of this, remembering that this is not primarily about our action, but what can we still learn? The kingdom way, therefore, is to neither deny nor indulge our sin, but to mourn it. And I wonder if we could just pause there for a few moments. Is regular confession of your own sin a part of your life with God? Do you regularly repent of the things that you think, that you say, that you do, that you know are not right? 
Let us not buy into the modern mindset that we have all the answers, that we're always the victim. We are also all perpetrators. Where are we saying, thinking, doing things that are not right? Do you know how to appropriately confess those things to God? Keep the slate clean. And where might you be indulging your sin? Have you allowed a pocket of resistance to just develop a hardness of heart to set in? The kingdom way is to neither deny nor indulge our sin, but to mourn it. And if we zoom out from this individual level, you don't need me to tell you how much pain and suffering there is in the world as a result of sin. It's hard to know where to even start on this one. But the sense of mourning in this second beatitude naturally extends beyond our own sin and becomes a grief that we feel for the pain and the suffering that we see all around us in the lives of others and in the world. As Adam prayed about just before the talk, we've lived through some really, really difficult things to learn about, to hear about, and some of us have gone through ourselves. This earthquake less than two weeks ago, the death toll now 45,000 and rising. It's almost the anniversary of the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, a year of hearing just harrowing stories of suffering. And of course, all of this coming off the back of the pandemic where we all experienced loss and grief to some extent in a whole bunch of different ways. These are just three of the major sort of global catastrophes. You will, of course, know of so many more up-close, heartbreaking stories. Think of your own family. Think of your own friends, the communities, the workplaces that you are a part of. I'm sure you have experienced the effects of sin in all of those places. Do you know the phrase, no man is an island? And do you know the phrase, for whom the bell tolls? Right? Now, the, the latter is famous because Ernest Hemingway has a, a novel called For Whom the Bell Tolls, but he actually took that title, I've really changed gear here, haven't I? Um, from a John Donne piece of prose. And it blew my mind recently to find out that both those phrases, no man is an island, and for whom the bell tolls, come from exactly the same paragraph of John Donne's writing. No man is an island entire of itself. The death of any man diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Perhaps we could also say the sin of any man diminishes me too. We are all involved in mankind and we all feel the effects of death and sin. And in this era where we hear about all of this stuff so quickly and in so much detail in a way that was never possible before the technological age, I think we're susceptible to compassion fatigue. We just cannot, we're just literally not built to process the kind of information that we now hear about. And I don't think we actually know the effects that it has on us yet. 
We just cannot process the scale of pain that we hear about. It's easy to shut it down, to just ignore it, pretend like it's not happening. Or sadly, another way that some people cope with it is they trivialize it and they make fun of it. I think we've seen that a little bit with this really just sad missing woman case up in the north of England, Nicola Bully. Some people just engaging terribly with that, trivializing it. And so what do we do with this stuff, this sin that we're hearing about in the world, all of this pain that we just can't cope with on an individual level? Well, the kingdom way, I would suggest, is to neither ignore nor trivialize sin in the world, but to mourn it. And I guess my disclaimer to that would be, you know, you don't have to live in it all of the time. You don't have to carry all of it. I don't think that's the learning here. That wouldn't be healthy. But I think the kind of questions that we can each bring are, you know, Lord, which particular things are you putting on my heart to carry and to pray for? Which things am I contending for? And I think when we hear anything, you know, just do the RO prayer, Lord, have mercy, Holy Spirit, come, those kind of things. And then it's okay to move on. So I'm not saying the learning here is to sort of absorb all of this stuff and live in it. But I think you see what I'm saying here. We don't ignore it. We don't pretend like this stuff doesn't exist. But we also don't trivialize it or make light of it in any way. As kingdom people, we know how to mourn it. We invite the Spirit of God to come. And the kind of mourning, the expression of grief that I think we go through as kingdom people is different to how it is for others. We know how the story ends. In a way, we should feel the pain more keenly because we know how good things really could be and should be. The second half of each beatitude is so important, of course. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Part A doesn't make sense without part B. When we grieve as Christians over our own individual sin and over the pain, the suffering of mankind, we have hope in our grief. Both in Isaiah and in Revelation, we're given this beautiful image of the Lord wiping away the tears from every face, death and mourning coming to an end. In Isaiah, it says that death will be swallowed up forever. Mourning over sin and over death is not something that we will do forever as people of the kingdom. But it is an appropriate posture that we must take in the here and the now. And of course, Jesus is someone who expressed grief over death, over sin, over all of those things that are wrong in the world. The paradox of the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the shame of the cross. The man of sorrows, who's also the most joyful person who has ever lived. There's an appropriate posture that we must take as kingdom people of mourning over our sin and over the sin of the world. The word comfort is related to the word paraclete, which you may know is one of the names given to the Holy Spirit. And I think there's two sides to this comfort. I think there is an element to where we can experience the comfort of God in the here and now in our pain. But of course, there is that future hope when all things will be made well. 
wonder if the worship team could join me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Oh, the blessedness of those whose hearts are broken over the suffering of the world and for their own sin, for out of their sorrow they will find the joy of God. I wonder if we could just bow our heads in prayer for a moment as we reflect on this. Spirit of God, would you come? As I've been thinking and praying about what the Lord might want to speak to each of us today, it seems to me there might be a few different types of people here. I wonder if you're here and you have gone through a loss and you desperately need a companion in your grief. There's different types of grief, right? There's change, loss of a job, children leaving home, whatever the change might be. And of course, there is bereavement. And maybe you've never thought of Jesus in this way before as someone who could be a companion in your grief. And what we see here is that actually our grief, our mourning is actually a pathway for Jesus to come alongside us, to bring us his comfort. I wonder if some of you have gone through a lot of mourning. You feel like you know part A of this beatitude really well. But perhaps you've forgotten about part B. The comfort that only God can bring. Or you've desperately wanted it, but you've never experienced it. Maybe we have an opportunity this morning to pray for you the comfort of God would fill you afresh. And I wonder if for some of us, we have been avoiding dealing with sin in our own lives, whether it's denying it, whether it's trying to escape from it or numbing it. And we desperately need to find a healthier way 
we need to learn how to mourn it, to repent of it, to move on from it, to experience the comfort of God in our own brokenness. Spirit of God, would you come now? Feel free to open your hands in front of you as a way of inviting the Spirit of God to be with you now in this moment. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And Lord, we come to you now and we say that we know trouble caused by our own foolishness, inflicted on us by others, by our circumstances. And we desperately desire your comfort, Lord Jesus. We call upon your prophetic words. that mourning will turn to joy, that despair will turn to praise. We thank you, Jesus, that this is about what you are doing. And I lift off any sense of striving. For those of you who have read the Beatitudes as a to-do list, on some subconscious level, you've been striving and you're just, you're trying to save yourself. I pray that the Spirit of God would come now and lift that off of you. 